This is the final word story time, uh, number 153, the 153rd time we've done story time. That, of course, would match with the 153 not out that Brian Lara made in 1999 and the 153 not out that Kusal Janath Pereira made <laughs> in Durban against South Africa in, when was that, 2019? 2019, 2019, just before the Stokes thing was the Pereira mm. thing, which at the time yep. I remember there was a flurry of articles on Crick Info and other websites saying, does this overtake Gooch at Headingley in 1991? Which, you know, I think that you could you can make that case, only for Stokes to overtake both of them. And mm. I don't think there's any real doubt about it being, well, at least the best modern innings. I don't know if you want to go back to before televised cricket to mount a case for another one. But, uh, yes, those two happened within, I don't know, 20 test matches of each other, six months within of each a other. a few months, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was maybe February or February or March, I think. It was just after they'd left Australia, Sri Lanka. Mm, mm. They went straight to South Africa, I think it was at the end of Feb. So, But, but there's very little between them uh, when, you know, the degree of difficulty may be slightly harder for KJP with the bowling attack he was up against. Um, True which was very, very good, um, but then maybe the pressure was a bit lower with the, the lower attendance and sort of lower stakes in general than doing it in the middle of a hyped-up Ashes campaign. But who knew? I didn't know that that was a diversion we were going to go down because uh, that was just impromptu off the top to link 153 with other things. But that's what we do on this show is we link numbers with other things. Uh, the World Cup is well underway. It's not well underway at the time that we're recording this. Uh, <laughs> this is one that we prepared earlier, but at the time that you're hearing it will be several games into the World Cup. But we're not thinking about the World Cup now. We're thinking about past cricket. We're thinking about things that happened previously. And, and, and there have been... A lot of those things, including some correspondence going all the way back to 1980, what was it? 1991. It would have been late mm. 1990, to be precise. So this is David WFG's 1110, which we've dealt with a few mm. times now, and we established last week, once and for all, that we were talking about Dean Jones making a brisk 110 against the touring English at Ballarat in 1990, just before Christmas, then a duck in the second inning. So one one zero zero was the mm. sequence of numbers. But I, I kind of speculated that this might have been something Mel Shawley was at because we know from her previous pledges and becoming friends with her in real life that she went to 1990-91, bit of a gap year type thing, went over to Australia. And she was in Ballarat and uh, her recollections per her correspondence during the week, I was at that game, it was bloody freezing. I have memories of Chris Lewis playing a drum kit in front of the pavilion and a Sir Philip Tufnell Fielding Academy sign. It was the second time in a week we'd seen Dean Jones score a century after his 145 at the Gabba. So you might remember that I mentioned last week they played six one-day internationals between the first test and the second test. The Dino 145, um, per the conversation we had when he died, is one of my first defining memories when he hit a six over over the dog track and so on. I think he hit that to bring up the 100 and uh, and yeah, that was a, a, an early moment for me that really stood out. Mel continues, the other story behind this game was that after scoring his century, Alan Lamb got injured running back to the hotel and was omitted for the second test match. I didn't believe that then, and I don't believe that now. So what did Alan Lamb do in Ballarat to find himself out of the, the MCG test match? She ended up posting some photos from that week too on the Discord page, and on I think she replied to me on Twitter with them as well, so you can find them there. Beautiful pavilion shot. Chris Lewis playing the drums in his MCC touring jumper. Alan Lamb signing autographs. 
Amel wants to know if David can join Discord so he can trawl through the pictures and see whether he's in any of them because we know this goes back to it being David's first Red Bull game. So maybe he's in the background of one of Mel's shots as a, a young lad there at Ballarat in 1990. So a, a nice way right. to kind of come full circle on a, a pretty enjoyable number to deal with. What was Alan Lamb up to? What was Alan yeah. Lamb doing in Ballarat? What was, was he Kate Bush-style keep running back to that hotel, <laughs> keep running down that road. Do you go through a hedge? Do you um, try to climb over a fence while plastered? Uh, it sounds, yeah, there's got to be something a little more to that, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, those those in the know, those who can get word from Alan Lamb, let us know. Jeremy Nash wrote into us as well after a story about uh, three captains, no idea when uh, Shane Warne made himself not captain of the Melbourne Stars so that Cameron White could be captain, who then made himself not captain so that James Faulkner could be captain so that none of them could be suspended for slow overrates. And Jeremy uh, wrote in with uh, a little bit of uh, almost supernatural correspondence. Yeah, so he was reading Warney's autobiography and was on the relevant two pages to this game when hearing our story time app which related to the number 325, an aggregate score between the Melbourne Stars and the Perth Scorchers in a thrilling finish in a Big Bash game over a decade ago. But, was um, he, he says, doing them at the same time? Was he reading yeah. and listening to a podcast at the same time? Is that possible? Yeah, well, yeah, quite. But I think the idea is that, you know, he, maybe he'd read the page the day before, mm. whatever it is, Jeremy Nash, the, these events had coincided. So I went back and had a look through the book and uh, read the pages that he that he posted. Warney says, I concede that I made a mistake bowling young Alex Keith instead of myself. The thing was, it was so wet out there, I couldn't get a grip on the ball. The extra detail in all of this, Jeff, was that James Faulkner, in addition to being no-balled for having three inside the circle instead of four, they showed on the replay screen he also overstepped. Now, I can't remember whether that would have meant anything. It probably wouldn't have meant anything because if it was a no-ball without a wicket being taken, there would have been no recourse for the third umpire. But still, Faulkner did overstep, so it should have been given mm. a no-ball either way. And it's pretty clear from that passage across the two pages that Warney didn't rate Cam White as a captain and didn't rate James Faulkner as a captain. And, you know, the, the subtext there is that everything would have been okay had he been in charge then and not got into trouble with overrates and so on. But he was. Like, he was effectively, you know, I mean, he literally says, I shouldn't have bowled Alex Keith instead of myself. <laughs> I mean, there is no doubt about who was running the team, who was True. making the decisions. They were having the Treaty of Versailles at the top of the bowling mark before that <laughs> final ball with Warren involved. He doesn't pick up that there are only three inside the circle either. So, Good point. Mm. Uh, the only time in his career that Shane Warne rewrote things in retrospect um, so that they reflected more favourably on him. And, and Jeff, we, we, we finally get to solve Rob O'Neill 21015 uh, before we start the new numbers here this week. So yeah. just to recap, if you haven't listened to Story Time for a little while, we've done a whole clump of revisits over the last two weeks, about 40 of them or something ridiculous. But we're back into new numbers and a couple of revisits this week, but there were some that still stumped us and predictably Rob O'Neill's was one of those. I knew the answer. He, he took mm. me into his confidence. He let me give you certain clues along the way and eventually you found it, it was to do with Chuck Fleetwood Smith and his service number. Well, I mean, Rob O'Neill is my nemesis if this is your first time listening to the the show, The, the Fox Runs, The Hounds Follow. But this, I, I'd got as close as guessing that it might have been somebody's prison 
number um, yes. and it wasn't quite but they did send a lot of people to the army instead of prison um, and, and, <laughs> and quite a few went the other way as well so there, <laughs> there, there's a kind of cultural exchange between the two services anyway 21015 was VX21015 which mm. was uh, the service number of Leslie O'Brien Fleetwood Smith the man they called Chuck Chuck Fleetwood Smith who you did a long story on only a few weeks ago by pure coincidence but we didn't really get into his his war record um, which, well, well this which, is the thing like, I, I kind of tried you might remember Jeff that I said mm. that there's really nothing you mentioned it yeah yeah there, there's kind of nothing usually like typically mm. a, a high profile sports person who went to war yeah, in their Wikipedia page or in their mm-hmm. obituary or something like that, will include a couple of paragraphs to give you a sense of what they're up to. It was really light on detail, so you had to go back through the records. Well, what, I, what I've got here is that, um, so f- firstly, track down the records of the Second Australian Imperial Force personnel dossiers collated mm-hmm. from 1939 to 1947. If you're interested, they largely reside in Canberra. We know this because the National Archives of Australia measures certain paper records not in numbers of pages but in metres, um, <laughs> I guess, to give you a sense of the page size. There is over 1.7 kilometres of AIF personnel dossiers stored in our nation's capital, which is good to know. There are only 16 metres in Victoria and 18 centimetres in New South Wales. Losers, get your act together. (laughs) Um, 1.74 kilometres in Canberra. So the dossier says he was born March 30th, 1910, which locks in that this is the correct Leslie O'Brien Fleetwood Smith, except there is reason to believe that he faked his date of birth because Chuck got up to a a bunch of dodgy shenanigans and and some of the biographical research on him suggests that he was actually born in 1908 and then decided Mm. to make himself a couple of years younger. I'm presuming maybe just to aid in romantic endeavours or something like that. Or cricket. He moved on to life or cricket. You often hear cricketers who... Uh, have lied about their age. I mean, this is a fairly common theme from around that era as well. Players who lost sure. time to war, who who backdated their ages to to make themselves more attractive when coming back from conflict. Yep. So I wouldn't doubt that this is part of that. Well, if he lost time to World War One, then he would have been either six years old or four years old when it started. Um, <laughs> and he didn't lose time to World War Two because he didn't join up until after his test career had finished. Maybe he didn't know it had finished, but he right, plays his yeah. last test in 38 and he signs up in Caulfield at the, the office there in May 1940. So uh, even when you were telling that story, I didn't quite click that he was six foot five, like mm. an absolute massive dude, especially for that era. I also didn't clock that he looked like baby John Burgess because when you when you pull up the images of him, there's quite a resemblance <laughs> to w- would you like to buy a vowel. Anyway, Chuck's war, maybe the reason there's not a lot on it, is that it, it was not filled with glory. You know, he was, what would he have been, 20, uh, 30 when he signed up? He doesn't go off on a big surge overseas. He, he doesn't join Barassi's dad in Tobruk. He does what Bradman does, which is become a warrant officer and get sent to Frankston. Mm. The the place that Ava Gardner certainly did not yes. take the line that she's attributed to, uh, <laughs> that he's attributed to her about it being an appropriate place to make a film about the end of the world. But did that um, pertain to Frankston or to Berwick? I always thought that was Berwick she was referring to because all of the the country scenes are filmed out there, aren't they? Is Frankston where they do? Because Phillip Island is the is the mm. iconic car crash, isn't it? Yes, Phillip Island racetrack is the racetrack yeah. there road race, but yep. they shot most of the beach scenes at Frankston. Because they had the um, – in, in the book, it's uh, it's Albert Park, I think. Albert Park. I think, Park that, I think they, they, yeah, they yeah. use Albert Park as the – as where they raced in, in, the, yeah. uh, in the book and I think in the films it was, yeah, Phillip Island. Anyway, anyway. Yeah, it's a, it's a stunning piece of cinema. I yeah, would say if yeah. you've never if you've never seen on the beach, it is well well worth going back to. Did you see the remake? Anyway, uh, no, is it terrible? 
<laughs> Brian Brown uh, oh, yeah. plays the lead. So he's the one who dies in the car accident. Well, car accident. Mm. He commits suicide, doesn't he? I haven't seen it in a long time. It was like one of those sort of uh, Channel 7 miniseries over a Sunday night, Monday night. Right. You know, late 90s energy. Um, yeah, I was okay. watching a bit of Brian Brown. Someone the other from McLeod's Daughters was was playing. Yeah, that, right. that's right. I went back to watch the end of um, Breaker Morant um, mm. the other day. The the uh, the execution scene. Yeah, my my as you know, Jeff, from having access to my YouTube search history, it's some pretty yeah. weird shit ends up on there. So why? What? what mm-hmm. You know why? Because I, I watched um, the club with Winnie on Saturday afternoon after the grand final. I said, "Come on, love, come on the couch mm. with Dad. Let's watch some Australian stuff." So she fell asleep on me watching the club. But after that, I kind of got in that groove of watching some clips <laughs> of Australian films from a certain era, which Breaker Morant is part of. And yeah, Brian Brown was in the remake of On the Beach. So for all of mm. you, um, I'm sure that's on YouTube as well. I, I went back and read some books on Breaker Morant a couple of years ago. I'll tell you what, he fucking did it. I mean, <laughs> you, you can't feel very hard done by that he got put up against the post. But there's anyway, never any we, doubt that he did it right. Yeah, it was never. Like, was there any ever real? Sp- it was more kind of a, a sense whether that was, the Australians were being fucked over by the Brits. Yes. Yeah, who were who were doing the same things? But you know, definitely, definitely, very obvious war crimes. Anyway, so feeling sorry for Breaker Morant seems a bit odd. Nonetheless, let's get back to being a warrant officer down at Frankston, which is where <laughs> Chuck Fleetwood Smith is. While down there. I know I'm, I'm going to make a couple of assumptions here, but I'm pretty comfortable doing so. Gets drunk as a lord, steals a car from the army and crashes it into the shit cart, literally into the cart that's hauling the human waste off the army base. Fifth he crashes. He, yes, <laughs> exactly. But human this time. You'd rather get the truck of cow shit, I would imagine. Manure! He winds up in court for this. They only make him pay costs. But 10 months after joining the army, he gets discharged on quote-unquote medical grounds, which I think we can assume means you are a cricketer, you're a bit famous, also you are drunk all the time. We're going to politely get rid of you in the most low-key way possible. So you, you did tell the rest of the the, the end of his life and, and the, the, the sad last years that he had, but I, I felt like his his glorious months as a soldier sort of reflect his cricket career in that he, he burned very, very brightly and then ended up crashing the shit cart as he did against that 950 that England piled up during his last test in England. Anyway, that's uh, that's what I've been able to learn about the military career of Chuck Fleetwood Smith and that puts the final full stop on Rob O'Neill's 21015. Thank you, Rob. Jeff, we are ready for the first time in a few weeks for some new numbers, which means we're about to play some. Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge, the game that we play with the nice people on the internet who fund this program by sending in contributions of currency in a numerical form of their choosing, one that relates to cricket in some way, and we have to decipher what that number means. And the first number is for you, Jeff. It's a re-up from Matthew Evans. He's been here before. 918 in the GBP. An extraordinary swing of events for the county I support. As a child, I thought Middlesex was in the middle of England, so it's not them. Jeff, over to you. <laughs> uh, Middlesex by Geoffrey Eugenides. Yes, well, you know, sometimes maybe the Middlesex is just the sex you have between the first sex and the last sex. Um, so nine pounds eighteen, nine one eight, and and I thought swing. He says an extraordinary swing of events. That's got to mean something. There's got to be a bit of cryptic crosswordage going on in here. So I initially thought swing bowling figures. Is there a swing bowler who took nine for eighteen? No, it's only been. Taken twice, both by Australians. The demon Spoffeth did it against Oxford 
University, and uh, Ron Oxenham did it against Salon. So it's never been done in county cricket or against a county side. Peter Willey batted 918 times in first-class cricket. That stat blew me away. That's a lot of... He played 559 games, and I thought, like, okay, well, hang on, I didn't really remember who's played the most. There are 76 players who've played more. I thought he might be top 10 with that sort of tally, but... Wilfred Rhodes played over a thousand. I knew that, but I didn't realise there were so many in between five hundred and and four figures. Yeah, uh, you sort of, you sort of, your Woolies and your, your Freemans mm. and others—they're all from the same era, aren't they? When, yeah. when you know they were playing upwards of forty games of first-class cricket per season when that kind of thing was possible. Mm. Like all of the Championship cricket, then Universities games, MCC games, the rest. Other England international yep. games that were, well, I say test matches, you could play a much higher volume than is, than is even vaguely possible now. And then you go on a tour and then you play a bunch of provinces yeah. and yep. in um, states and counties and, you know, whatever else. So anyway, I didn't think it would be related to that, to a career mark, nor um, Arnold Warren, the champion bowler for Derbyshire who took 918 first-class wickets. I thought it's not going to be a career number because it has to be an event. And it is the third highest score all out in first-class cricket. There have been higher declared scores, but 918. New South Wales made it against South Australia. I had a chat to the Nerd Pledge Sleuth group about this as well. We we're trying to, trying to figure out it's got to be an event, right? It's got to be related to some particular thing. How about this? And you will enjoy this one. What about Liam Norwell? Now, we're swinging an extraordinary swing of events. We know that he took nine wickets on the last day of the season, not this season, but last year, wasn't it? Was it was almost a year to the day, wasn't it? Because I think the championship season might have drifted into October in 2022. So, yeah, we're, we're about a year since that remarkable effort that kept Warwickshire up. And sadly, Norwell didn't play at all this year like this that ongoing run of injuries. He's the kind of guy, like, if he were fit for two years, he'd play for England, I reckon. But anyway, he did keep them up and they are still up for, for 2024 as well. And it's, yeah, still his most recent first-class appearance. So Warwickshire, stouching with Yorkshire, they're not playing each other, but they're both facing relegation. Mm. And he takes his nine. Yes, he takes nine for 62, but he takes them in 18.4 overs. So could you say he takes nine wickets in 18 overs? Our number is yeah. 918. Okay, yeah, that seems pretty decent. What about this? He takes the 10th wicket of the innings. It's not a case where someone else takes the 10th and robs him of a, of a 10 for. He takes the 10th to finish the match. It's the 18th wicket of the day. So there's another 18. He takes nine including the 18th of the day, right? What about this as well? Okay, how many points did they get? Warwickshire got 16 points and then for the win and then they got five bonus points, so they got 21 points. Yorkshire lost, but they got three points in their loss. The swing, an extraordinary swing of events, the swing of <laughs> points was 18 points that Warwickshire made up on Yorkshire with the nine wickets. And finally, Yorkshire lost their game by 18 runs. What do you reckon? It's perfect. It's perfect. We've come back to this game a few times, haven't we? And um, yeah, it was Oliver Hannon Dolby who took the other wicket, by the way, who we've referenced like 10 times in the last two months. He apparently um, listened to the show. Apparently listened to the show. I hope he does. <laughs> now we've said it enough times. We're making it real. We're manifesting. 
But Yorkshire came into the... Someone will be calling him saying, do you listen to the show? And then he'll have to listen to it in order to hear us say that he listens to it, by which point it will have come true. Uh, So Yorkshire came into the penultimate round at Surrey, the game that Norcross and I were doing. It was the first game we streamed, actually, the proper sort of TV production and all the rest of it, or TV-style production, if you like. I think Yorkshire might have been fourth last and, like, basically safe. They only needed to have, like, a draw or collect enough batting points and bowling points. There was no way they were going down. But Surrey trounced them in eight sessions and then they got beaten in the final round and it gave Warwickshire just enough room to squeeze through and and so they did. So Warwickshire won the comp in 2021 and stay up in in 2022 in in these circumstances. But, yeah, I think um, we've already seen a whole bunch of merchandise go out in the last 12 months, the 9 for 62 merchandise and so on uh, for Norwell and and what he achieved that day. So um, hopefully he gets back on the park soon and that's a very clever use of numbers, Matthew Evans. I commend you on it. Good first pledge of the day. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Harry Wojciechowski is up next. He's got four pounds flat, so we'll read that number as 400. Of course, yep. this being Nerd Pledge, you can decimalise, not decimalise. It can go wherever you like and... Uh, if you sent a clue, Harry, I lost it. Um, and if you didn't send one, then this is a free sweep. I think this is better anyway because I've had some fun with this. So I, I got rather fixated on this number, Harry. <laughs> Probably won't surprise you to learn that sometimes I get slightly obsessed with things. I wanted it to be a collection of things. I just, you know, yeah, you could do Lara, right? We could do Lara again, 400. I could tell you all about the fact that his fourth hundred was the slowest of the four. I could tell you all about how many days that elapsed between Matt Hayden making 380 and Lara overtaking him. But we've, you know, we've done stuff like that in the past and we've kind of taken the piss out of that Lara 400 for the reasons that I said before. We, we could sing, I'm sorry, Matt Hayden, I am for real. Yeah, exactly. We'll get Will on to do it with us. But that came on the other night, by the way. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson came on when we were on the tonk after mm-hmm. the final word game and I was singing, I'm sorry, Matt Hayden, and at least one person of the 20 or so who are out dancing, knew what I was talking about, long-term listener, surely. <laughs> the 400th Test match, Jeff, I think you'll appreciate this. So this is Pakistan, India, at Karachi, March 1955. The fifth match of that series. How good is that, by the way? A five-test match series between India and Pakistan. It's like mm, we would we would back. cover that. Like we would go to that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in fact, I'll go further. If 100%. Pakistan play India at a test match, we're going to go. Yeah. You and I are going to go. Okay. We, might, we may not get visas we, we to, would to buy go to India. We'd like sell kidneys and yeah. make it happen. We're keen to see Five this Five tests happen. at the MCG. Done. Back to back. Done. The MCG, which is bigger than Modi Stadium. I don't care what anyone says. So it was, it was nil all going into up to it. It's just bigger anyway, right? I mean, it's deceptive. It's the, the two-tier thing. Like, there's no way that's bigger than the G. Anyway, the one – okay, so where are we? It's nil all going into the fifth which is of itself Hot. of its time. Uh, then Pakistan are all out for 162, India all out for 145. You would think based on that they're getting a result, but not rain intervened and that was that. So five draws on the trot between oh. India and Pakistan in 1955. I think that's happened three times in test history, mm. five test series where it's been nil all. Given us GBP, I had a quick squeeze at the cap number 400 for England and it's Peter Walker. We, we touched on him very briefly about a year ago, but I'll just uh, thread this together. So mm. he was a Glamorgan all-rounder with South African ties. I think he uh, might have been born there, played in both countries, played three test matches against South Africa in 1960, barely got a go. 
But his right. real statistical claim to fame is his fielding. Took 697 catches in 469 first-class appearances, the 11th most in first-class history. And I know that's a big number there, 469, but as you pointed out before when you were going through the first-class tally of Peter Willey, like, there are players that have played many, many more matches than 469. Twice as many. There are players who've doubled it. Yeah, and he's still 11th for catches, so he clearly had a good pair of mitts. The most mm. catches, if you're wondering, was Frank Woolley. Uh, Frank Woolley always leads these tallies, doesn't he? Mm. With 1,017 catches, the only player ever um, to take more than 1,000 was him. Grace in second spot with 873. With uh, the, the player in question, Peter Walker. How many of those do you reckon bounced for Grace? Yeah, right, yeah. I've Peter Walker. Tip and- is it Peter Walker? We were speaking about cinema and miniseries before. Wasn't Peter Walker the accomplice of Ronald Ryan? Broke oh. out of Pentridge with him? Maybe. I think it was, you know. He should have uh, been on our prison break episode. Well, I was just saying, that, well, that got made into a miniseries as well, didn't it? The Last of the Ryans, around the same time as the, the remake of On the Beach, where they, they track the last man hanged in Australia. Yeah. I used to get quite worked up about that. I went to the vigil 40 years on. I went to Pentridge and went to right. the, you know, 40 years since the execution in 2007. I had. Yeah, I read all the books as a kid and was kind of obsessed with the the idea that how is it possible they were hanging people, the place where mm-hmm. I lived so late. Anyway, anyway, I'm pretty sure that was Peter Walker. Not the same Peter Walker. When they scaled down the wall, they hopped on a pair of bright red bicycles and took off for freedom. Yeah, and, and they used a, a hawthorn scarf um, as part of the uh, – when they when they took the gun they off the their water. Together. Yeah, anyway. Where are we? Peter Walker in 1961, so five years before the escape from Pentridge, took 73 catches and made 1,347 runs and took 101 wickets. So that's the best mm. treble ever for a player in one season. So, you know, okay. players have made more runs and taken more wickets, but not with more catches. So if you're looking at it in totality, that is the best treble, better than Hammond, who I think had a season where he took possibly more catches but fewer wickets, something like that. The worst prison break is the one, the guy who wrote Shantaram, because that is the worst fucking book I've ever read. What's his name? David Gregory something. Jesus I'm not a crosser. Oh, he, you know, escapes from one of the prisons in Australia and flees to India, which did happen. And then he just writes this, like, absolute fantastical account of like what happened next but it's just the, it's just the most overwritten drab like clear, you just really needed an, uh, an editor like <laughs> every every noun has three adjectives every new character gets like four pages where he describes their eyes and how they looked like a, a topaz waterfall cascading over an ivory cliff into an undisturbed pool of it was like just just shut up. <laughs> Just stop writing so many words. Just like you, this could actually be an interesting story if you didn't have to describe everything to within an inch of its life. Anyway, apparently I had to write it three times because he lost the first two manuscripts and I, I think he just added 30% every time he rewrote the next one. God, I, I was I was, stu- I was on an island for a week and there were two books on the island and one of them was like a dictionary and the other one was Shantaram. So I finished it because there was, you know, I just almost finished it out of spite. But yeah, it is, it is the book that I hate most of all of the books that I've read in my life. Good to know. Should have stayed in jail. We've got a theme going on Storytime 153 here, you know. This might inform the title. Storytime 153, Breaking Out of Prison or you know, <laughs> something like that. 
so uh, I mentioned earlier that he that he is from, from Glamorgan Walker. Did loads for Cricket Wales. He presented on the television for the BBC when Glamorgan were televised in the sixties. He ended up the, the inaugural chief executive of Cricket Wales in nineteen ninety six. He was president of Glamorgan later in life in, in two thousand and nine. Uh, he was the president when they hosted their first Test match at Ashes Test, famous Ashes Test of two thousand and nine. Um, he passed away uh, during the pandemic, but not of COVID, of a stroke. He was eighty four years of age. Now. Once I got through that, I'm like, oh, that, that's fine. That's a nice answer. We've told a story about someone who had an important career and there's a statistical quirk there with the best treble ever. But no, nah, fuck, I, want, I wanted more. I wanted to dive deeper. So I thought, what about looking at the different 400s or 40s? So four players made it to 400 one-day internationals. Sachin, 463. Jay Awardner, 448. Jay Surya, 445. And Sangakara, Friend of the show, four hundred and four, Afridi three ninety eight. Don't rule him. Don't rule out Afridi making a comeback. By the way, he's on three ninety eight, but he could get there eventually. Speaking or of guys, they just who need amended to, to their, reclassify a couple of games. Quite. Well, speaking of guys who've amended their ages, right? Which we were saying earlier with with Fleetwood Smith. Then I thought forty instances of something, and I went through all of the normal bits and bobs. There have been ninety one tenfers in first class cricket. Twenty five men have made one hundred hundreds. There have been 31 triple tons. There have been 115 centuries on test taboo. There have been 16 centuries on one day taboo. Then carried bats. I thought, oh, this is a decent chance. 56 carried bats in test cricket. There have been 13 carried bats in one day internationals and Chris Gale did it for laughs in a T20i as well. Now, there'll be a few more on that for women, which didn't appear on the list I was looking at, if you're wondering why those numbers are a little bit light on. I think there are a few women who've carried their bat in Test cricket. Then I went to Andrew Sampson. Seven tonnes on Test debut from memory. Yeah, it's seven Australians uh, have made 100. Seven. Seven, yeah, there's 27 Australians, 20 men, seven women, so there'll be a few more than that. Then I thought, well, why not get Andrew Sampson in, in with me for this one? I asked him, has anything happened 40 times? And how about this? When this pledge came in, now... I'm assuming Harry sent this message in before the start of 2023. And if he didn't... He did. Lie to me. He did? He did. Perfect. Perfect. I'm so pleased. As of, the start of, as of the start of this year, as of January the 1st, 2023, there have been 40 list day double centuries. <laughs> there were three oh. this year. There were three this year, but it ticks the box. Uh, the highest... Ever comes in this span of time as well, by the way. In uh, Jardison for Tamil Nadu, we spoke about that when it happened in March, I think, this year. He broke the record of the great Ali Brown, who made 268 against Glamorgan, who we were referencing earlier in the answer, and Kaspervich back in, in 2003. Rohit Sharma, the next best, 264 against Sri Lanka at Eden Gardens in 2014, which is also the highest one-day score. And Darcy Short, 257, next on the list with his 257 when it was still the Barbecue Cup and at Hurstville, which we were lamenting the loss of uh, on the weekly show a couple of days ago. But yes, 40 times when this pledge came in, Harry, there had been a double century made in list day cricket. So that's my final answer. Many to choose from, but Eddie, lock it in. I like it. I like it. It works. I, I like uh, <laughs> the question, has anything happened 40 times? <laughs> Quite a few things. <laughs> my, my correspondence with Samo is an absolute joke. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Just like, mm-hmm. hey, can now this obscure thought that I've had at the middle of the night, <laughs> two a.m. Can you confirm or deny or pad this out for me? So, yeah. Um, thankfully, he's very good and helps a lot with these types of things. 
Oh, because he he wants to know. He's one of those. But as soon as yep. you ask him that question, he also desires to know the answer <laughs> to that question <laughs> and has the means to find out. All right, that is the 400 for Harry. Uh, we've got Kieran O'Kane up next. Yeah, 200. But Kieran says it's not a Julio, so please adjust the spreadsheet accordingly. Jeff, hint is Cape Town and cult hero. Maybe too vague, but if you look at the nationality on my previous pledges, it should help. Well, Jeff, you were defining what it is to be a cult hero last week, Mm -hmm. rather redefining what it is in the context of a pledge that came in. So it's right in your swinging arc. So please, uh, please take it away. Yes. So, so two euros. Um, And normally if someone sent two euros, as Kieran suggests, you would say a uh, euros are sexy and you would say B, well, two is usually a Julio pledge, which is uh, Mm. a non nerd pledge. It's, it's not a number, but in this case it is a number. Well, it's still a number, but it's not a number with uh, with with a story attached to it. This one is, and when you look at so Kieran O'Kane, Kieran spelt with a C, and sending in euros, then like vibes wise, this should be an Irish answer. This should be an Irish mm. uh, listener. But he said, look at his answers, and I, I did remember one or two of them, and I looked up the others. There was the random one about Greg Rowell, the Australia A bowler, oh, yeah. that came in not that long ago. But aside from that, he's had one about Joe Root. One about uh, his friend and listener to the show and Final Word 11 uh, player, Will Day, and one about Alistair Cook's bowling average. So so this is English. Yeah, well, I suppose um, we did mention Greg Rao being used as rhyming slang all over Urban Dictionary. And uh, what did you say there? Joe Root as well. So there, there, are, there are two links there. <laughs> There we um, are. If you like. And as Jim always used to say when they were playing together, mm, the two verbs, root and cook batting together. Uh, <laughs> yes, there was, there, was a, there was a time, wasn't it, when that whole English team were verbs with trot and, and uh, <laughs> so on. Anyway, English, it's got to be an English answer. We're looking for a cult hero performance by an English player at Cape Town. I assumed test cricket. It involves the number two, so it's not going to be the best bowling figures, but I was interested to see see that the best English bowling figures at Cape Town were taken by Johnny Briggs uh, and the second best were taken by Johnny Briggs (laughs) in the same test match Um, because he was an 1800 spinner who liked taking shitloads of wickets. Everybody else on the best innings figures list is also one of those. Johnny Wardle is third, JJ Ferris is fourth, Colin Blythe is, I guess, early 1900s, but, you know, still similar similar vibe, those who've taken seven or more in an innings. Uh, Colin Blythe, by the way, took wickets in an innings in Cape Town six times, which is more times than anyone else has done it for England, so managed to play a lot of tests in Cape Town somehow. Anyway, I thought we're looking for two wickets in an innings, and that fits more with a, with a cult character. So a few options here. Arnold Fothergill in 1889, who probably deserves a Dusty Old Bastard's story to be told at some point, played two test matches, took two wickets in that innings at Cape Town. Nutty Martin, who we've spoken about on the show before. You'll remember our friend Nutty, who played a test there in 1892. This might be the test match with the best names collectively. So Nutty Martin's right. there. JJ Ferris is there. The... A remarkable wicketkeeper Dick Power, um, who we've also <laughs> spoken about before, whose people suggest that the pronunciation of P-O-U-G-H-E-R should not be power. I contest that. I think that is the only way to pronounce it, even if you could come up with an alternative. For the South Africans, Fluey de Toit, who we've spoken oh, about yeah. before Detoit as well. like a tiger. We've done him, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> who was playing with his teammates Godfrey Cripps, Dante Martin... Clarence Wimble and Barberton Halliwell. 
It's like the it's like the names in Winnie's nursery class, like you know, like names that go full circle. It's it's like the Nintendo baseball names. Like at this point, we like make up some names for posh English, um, yeah. English descended people in in South Africa. Barberton Halliwell. Anyway, so it's 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 probably not Nutty Martin, but it could be. It could be 2010 when Graham Onions takes two for 69 in the first innings. He does get Hashim Amla and Jacques Callis to keep South Africa to a lowish score, two pretty handy wickets. South Africa go big in the third innings. He only gets one wicket then, but that is Graham Smith who's made a big hundred and it's important to get him out. And then it's Graham Onions with the bat in the fourth innings holding out for the draw, nine wickets down in that very famous test match. So does that qualify as a cult hero performance? Only played, what, nine or ten test matches? Deserve to play more. Uh, Graham Onions, bunny, um, you know... Extraordinary first-class record, what he did, especially for Durham. Um, winning trophies with them just simply wouldn't have been possible without Onions. He, you know, he, he, for, there was a time, you know, that he had his moment, 2009 Ashes. He was a, a key member of that side. But, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Keep going, please. I, th- I think that fits the criteria or the other one that fits the criteria is a cult hero who we mentioned only last week on the show and who we've actually had a nerd pledge before about this performance, which seems implausible that two people could make a nerd pledge for Diamond Joe Denley taking two for 42 oh, in the yeah. second test of 2020. We, we did that. Yeah, we, we did that um, when we were in India. I remember answering that yeah. um, in a revisit special uh, that we recorded um, outside in Nagpur. Well, I, I think this may be a double up on a very unlikely number. As you mentioned, he makes 31 and 38 in his two batting innings, both in stubborn partnerships that get them past 100 after an early Zach Crawley wicket, hard to believe I know. And then when they're trying to bowl out South Africa on the last day, he takes two important wickets. He dislodges Dean Elgar, who's really bedded in, and then he gets Quinton de Kock out after QDK (laughs) has just reached 50. So they only bowl them out in the last hour of the day. It's after drinks in the final session. And so it's it's an important contribution to take those two wickets. And he finished this season with with 100 as well, just to prove that he can do it sometimes. So I reckon, Kieran, that's probably the way that you're going is Diamond Joe. I like it. I, I think you're right. I'd be surprised if you're not right. That was a, a big moment, right? That test match ended in, in stunning style with Stokes bringing himself on. Well, not bringing himself on, but effectively bringing himself on. You would have said to Joe, Joe, I'm Shane bowling Warren now. brought him on, actually. Shane yeah. Warren was captain in that test match. <laughs> yeah, it would have been Stokes saying, OK, Joe, I'm going to bowl the rest of the innings, please. It was Crawley mm. and Sibley, wasn't it, in the cordon juggled catch. Mm. and Yeah, I, I, I remember that series quite fondly because it was, well, just before the pandemic was a thing. I mean, as we know now, it had already started, but we didn't know it had started in any meaningful way. And we were, you know, a few weeks away from Winnie being born. So it was sort of that excited mm. writing birth plans and, you know, uh, preparing rooms and folding clothes and, and so on. So, uh, and, and watching, you know, a lot of cricket and, and sort of um, nesting, if you like. So, uh, simpler times. Last new number, a couple of revisits to come, is from Xavier Bochat, or Boucha, as we like to call him on this show, which is also French for good cat. Um, Good to know. This is also what could be a Julio pledge, but is in fact a nerd pledge. It is $5 in Australian currency, five flat. He says... The stat that I'm referencing does not relate to this number. That's helpful. Um, However, the number is relevant to the player in question. My stat comes with the following clue. The most of one without any of the other. Yeah, this was fun. So I went straight to who's made lots of 50s without making 100, which I Uh think was a reasonable 
a reasonable starting point, and I spent a bit of time yeah. here. I spent a bit of time. Or, hun- or hundreds without a 50. Hundreds without a 50. Hundreds without a 50. Quite right. So, I mean, I think we all now know Norwich and Dickwella has got the most test 50s without a 100. Gets spoken about all the time. 22 of them. 22 mm. 50s without a ton for Dickwella, one of the more entertaining cricketers. The most centuries without a 50, if you like, what you're referring to, there's Ravi. Of course, it's Ravi Bapara. Three centuries, but never got out. Oh, so it is. 50 and 100. Yeah. That's right. I was, I was just racking my brains trying to remember who it was because I know we've yeah. spoken about it before. I, I like this Dick Weller business though. So he's he's averaging 31 across 54 test matches, batting at seven. Like He's doing a good job. It's just this hurdle that he's got. High score in test cricket of 96. He's only a little bit behind Shane Warne as well for most runs without a ton. He's made 2,757 test runs. Shane Warne made 3,154. So within, you know, what is that, 400, and 400 or so runs. But he's batted 103 fewer times than Warney did. Just going back to the, the measure of 50s of that 100, Warn made 12 half centuries, fourth on that measure. Slasher Mackay in at third on 13. And then in second spot, now we're going a bit of a detour here, was Chet and Chowan. Now, he was a serious, legit opening batter. Played 40 test matches, Chet and Chowan, 40 between 1969 and 1981. Mm. He's pretty much Chanel Gavaskar's comfort pony of sorts. Like he's down the other end. Gavaskar's making the hundreds. Chowan's putting in the hard yards. He's known as a tough nut. Wears a lot of balls on the body. Absorbs a Mm. lot of pressure. Gavaskar able to be his best self down the other end. They did have 10 100-run stands, which – and, and there was no there was no pair better opening on that measure until Saywag and Gambia come along, you know, three decades later. Right. And all of those partnerships came at the end. So he had eight years out of international ranks. His first five test matches were played in 1969, and they were best summed up by the fact that he took 25 minutes to get off the mark on taboo against New Zealand in 1969. Their highest partnership was 213 at the Oval in 79, which... Everybody remembers Gavaskar's 221, all-time great innings, et cetera, et cetera. But poor old Chowan. You know, you think out of 213, he'd reach three figures. No, he got 80 of them for the first wicket from 314 minutes and 263 deliveries was still 20 short of a century. That's one of five times he had an 80 in test cricket and two 90s. And they both come towards the end. 93 against Pakistan at Lahore in 79. And then more devastatingly for him, 97 against Australia at Adelaide in 1991. His final season, if you like, as an international player. One last mm. chance to do it after all this time. On a road, Adelaide Oval, Australia make 528. Kim Hughes, his double ton, 213. India apply with 419. But on 97, there's no shame being out court bold Lily. And, and that's what he was, Chowan, mm. uh, three away from what would have been his maiden century 12 years after his debut. Got 85 the next week at the MCG as well, so he finished with a bit of a flurry. 78 at Christchurch in his penultimate test match. The last of his 1650s with no centuries. Did make 21 tonnes at first-class level and 11,000 runs at an average of 40. Later in life, he, he did... Quite a bit as well. He was a member of the, I guess, now dominant BJP, had two stints as a member of parliament. He was of that way as a player as well. He and Gavaska wanted tax reductions for their match fees and they negotiated that with the powers that be successfully. So, you know, I guess um, parties of the right tend to be in favour of low taxation wherever possible, certainly when it relates to their own own finances. He was a selector. He was a team manager, famously was the team manager during Monkeygate in 2008 at the SCG. 
He passed away in the August of 2020 at age 73, around the same time that that Peter Walker passed away in my previous answer. But in the case of Chowan, it was from complications of COVID-19. His obituary in Wisdom said he had a tremendous sense of humour and a tremendous attachment to Indian cricket. It won't be him, but nice to go through his story, uh, the second most 50s without 100. Then I thought, hang on, if the number's five... If, we're, if an emphasis here in the clue from Xavier is the fact that it's the number five, what about mm. not taking a FIFA? What about fine avoidance, as you'd say in club cricket, where, you know, if you take a FIFA, you've got to buy jugs. If you take a FORFA, um, it's fine avoidance and you've got to buy a jug anyway. Stephen Lynch has done the, the legwork on this earlier in the year on his brilliant Crick Info blog that I come back to all the time. How's this? Tamal Mills, when Lynchy wrote his blog, Tamal Mills had taken 275 professional wickets without a FIFA. That's now up to 309 wickets Tamal Mills has taken, 232 in what? T20s, 22 in list A, 55 in first-class cricket, a best of four for 13, which was this year in the blast. Yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty remarkable that he's played, Tamal Mills, who's played quite a bit for England, mm. highly sought after on the domestic circuit. I suppose that's partly due to most of that being in the T20 format, but still, yeah. you know, you do see fifers by dominant bowlers in T20 cricket. Well, you, yeah, you see something gets a bit fluky, right? You can you can take a couple in an opening spell and then maybe you get three across two overs at the end when they're slogging or something like that. Maybe it's to do with the overs that he bowls, but yeah, I, I guess playing largely in 20-over cricket, you reduce your opportunity to do it. But that's an extraordinary figure. So as Lynch says, he's the fourth overall in terms of bowlers with the most wickets in professional cricket without a fifer. Luke Woodcock uh, leads the way there. He played seven white ball games for New Zealand in 2011, which I must admit I don't remember. That's my kind of black spot where a lot of cricket happened and I wasn't watching it. Left arm orthodox, took 339 wickets with a best of four for three. So, yeah, again, that's more fine avoidance. Then I, um, <laughs> then I came up with one I absolutely couldn't believe. A bloke with 52 one-day wickets for Australia – Two World Cup wins, bowled so many overs. I, I can see him bowling in the mind's eye. I think of him as kind of a batting all-rounder, in fact. Played county cricket for like 15 seasons. Darren Lehman. Darren Lehman took 313 wickets in professional cricket without raising the ball for a fifer. I was flummoxed by that. I just assumed that Boof in county cricket would have had many days out. Indeed, I, I assume that he probably had a day out or two for Australia as well, given much of his one-day cricket was played yeah. in the subcontinent. I remember him – I'm pretty sure I remember him taking a four for, for Australia in a, in a one-day once, maybe. Yeah, well, it's he a, took a lot of four a slight bell ringing. He, he took a lot of forfers, it would seem, but never never a fifer. So the story of Mills and Boof, if you will, mm. Boomtish. In, in test cricket, Mike Hendrick, uh, it's fairly well known that he's the most test wickets without a fifer, 87 of them. We've touched on that before. One day has also surprised me. You know, a guy who was an all-rounder for probably two-thirds of his one-day career, two World Cups again, a long, long one-day career. Steve Waugh, Steve 195 Waugh. wickets, never took a fifer, never had a crash. So uh, 195 for him. Carl Hooper. He's an excellent driver. You know, he's, he's an excellent driver. <laughs> he's got a Commonwealth Games silver medal, though. Sure yeah, does. Carl Hooper. Ruins, kind of ruins my quiz question in a way. Carl Hooper took 193 one-day wickets without a, without a FIFA, took FIFAs at test level. That quiz question that I've done before about all-rounders that completed the set. Didn't have a FIFA in one-day cricket, though. Is it any of this? Who knows? But, Xavier, you can tell us whether we're right or wrong or otherwise. And that was, again, a, an enjoyable answer to go through with. A host of options for you. Those are the new numbers. And if you want to 
do this, if you want to play this game, you can send us a nerd pledge at patron.com slash the final word, which also gets you access to the, the final word chat page where a lot of our listeners are hanging out, doing fun things, playing the combat listening game through the World Cup, organising meetups, all kinds of good, fun, clean, wholesome and occasionally less wholesome activity. And uh, you can be a part of that. If you jump on board, it's a good time to do so. We're trying to get new pledges through in about three months. Sometimes it's squeezing out to about four, but we're doing our best yep. here at the Storytime Factory. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. Got a couple of revisits to look at. A quick one to cap off for Ian Wollstenholme because we already had a revisit on this and still didn't quite get it because he was <laughs> trying to get us onto the 1906 Olympics, which doesn't make sense because that's not a year when there was theoretically an Olympics. Yeah, right? so Ian's been in touch. Uh, Brent Simmons as well has sent some really helpful information through. He kind of cracked the code on this one, but Ian sent you through a link from a forum called planetcricket.org. I must admit, I'm, I, I wasn't, a, I was, you know, I, that's not a forum that I was familiar with, but on okay. page 60 of a thread, the answer lies. Well, or does it? Or does it? This is what I'll posit to you, Adam, because so the 1906 Olympics did happen. They, they had an in-between Olympics in Athens, as we talked about previously. Um, and I'd looked a lot around this and couldn't find any record of any cricket being played at the 1906 Olympics. It was played in 1900 in Paris, but wasn't played at any other games as far as we knew. So I read this thing on this this thread about the 06 games and it had a very detailed description of what had taken place but it had Australia and Great Britain and France and a bunch of other teams. It also had a USA team. And it started talking about Bart King, the great US bowler, playing in this Olympic Games. And I thought, I don't remember Bart King ever being at the Olympics. And taking five for 26, I'm pretty sure Ian's 260 would be the 26, the five for 26 that Bart King it supposedly took against Australia in the final for the gold medal, but also it was saying that Victor Trumper was there playing for Australia and Ranji Horden was, was in this tournament and Clem Hill they talk about and then they talk about how the US won the first Olympic gold medal in 1896 but Australia won in 1900 and 1904. None of those things ever happened. All of this is made up, right? Like those teams didn't exist. Australia didn't play in the 1900 Olympics in the cricket, let alone win it. We know that Great Britain played France in the final, even though it wasn't actually Great Britain, it wasn't really France. Like we know all of these things. This is a simulation game. This is on a chat board for simulating games. And I don't know whether Ian has been taken in by this or whether Ian is the person running the simulations and thus just fucking with us. But either way... Either way, Ian, this didn't happen. So my my likelihood of tracking down a game that never took place was pretty slim, which is why I was pretty confused about when I was looking for it last week. So they generate, it must be some sort of AI or statistical generation based on how good the players are in a numerical system. They ball by ball generate the match over 50 overs and then do a detailed write-up from that generated scorecard as if it had actually taken place like making up what the shots were, you know, because the, the generator will say you hit this ball for four, but it doesn't tell you where or how or whatever it is. So then someone fantasises about it and writes a fictional version based off the generated scorecard of how this match took place. That's what we're dealing with here, Adam. So we've been – this is kind of like the, those Russian IPL games last year yeah. or, or, or perhaps 
closer aligned is um, I was involved in a thing called the Australian Rules Fantasy Football Email League when I was in high school, early oh, no. years of high school, which, you know, kind of graded <laughs> players based on their skills and, and you know, the simulator yeah. would spit out the result. So, uh, yeah, okay. It's basically football manager for the 1906 Cricket Olympics, which didn't take place. And then there's the correspondence I had with, with Brent, who's another yes. listener of ours, who said, I think I've figured this out. How about this? Percy Lafontaine is a, a posh Brit who plays for one of the Greek football teams. You remember that I talked about the fact there was a sort of unsanctioned football tournament as part of those Olympics, but they weren't countries playing. They were teams from different parts of Greece. He plays for one of these football teams. Percy Lafontaine has a cousin. We think it's his cousin. They're both born in Constantinople in the, in the, the 1800s. They're both young men. He has a cousin called William Edward James LaFontaine. And William plays a match in 1895 for Harrow against Eton. He is exactly as you would expect for someone named LaFontaine, doesn't bowl in either innings, bats at eight and makes a pair. <laughs> but he's playing for Harrow. Eton in the first innings make 260, which is our number. So Brent suggested maybe it's because of this 260 and then you've got, through the La Fontaines, you've got a link to somebody participating in the 1906 Olympics. <laughs> you have both an Eton Harrow game in 1895. I mean, how he found this, God knows. Anyway, they're interesting to me in that they're both born in the same place and they both die somewhere different. So Percy is born in Constantinople and dies in Tabriz in, in Iran, in mm -hmm. what was Persia at the time. William is born in Constantinople but dies in Istanbul <laughs> because... <laughs> anyway, that's the 260. There is no real answer. Ian, you've led us a merry dance, whether deliberately or not. But there we are. It's resolved. Well, they, well yeah, Brent, hell of an effort from you to get yep. to where you've gotten to there. Thank you, Ian, for sending Jeff on that merry dance. I'd, I'd note as well that Brent met Mel on the 1990-91 tour of Australia. Mm -hmm. So it's possible he was also at Ballarat for the game that we were talking about at the very Probably. start of the show. There you go. Final answer is one that I'm going to take on this week from Nigel Brown, Jeff. It's a revisit. He says, for my nerd pledge of $10 flat, we've had a lot of Julio, what would normally be Julios that are nerd pledges today. He says, it's Charlie Hallows who got to 1,000 runs by the end of May in 27 days, not Don Bradman. But kudos to Jeff for picking the right area. I was looking for 27-day periods when Bradman got to 1,000 runs, which almost happened a couple of times. Mm. Charlie, he says, looks like a ripe, a dusty old bastard in the future. And indeed, so it has proved. Yeah, this is a, a, a cracker. So I think in real time, Jeff, I was on the Wikipedia page and realising that it was probably Hallows and not Bradman, even though you found a nice way of getting it to Bradman. I made it Bradman. You I, made I it Bradman. I found a way to yeah. make it Bradman. I can't remember how, but... So Hallows is a great story. So 1928 is where he, he reaches 1,000 runs before the end of May. So he was a left-handed gun from Little River in Lancashire, which is the county he played for. He had consecutive scores earlier in the month of 200, 202, 107 and 118 to be within striking distance of 1,000 in the final innings he was going to play starting on May the 30th, 1928. Weirdly, not a lot is made of this innings in his obituary. So I, I consulted the scorecard. It was against Sussex, 
Now, he'd gone really close in 1927. He made 925 runs by the end of May. So a fair bit riding on this, and indeed the toss, right? So if they bat first, he's more than a puncher's chance. Unfortunately, the scorecards that I looked at, looked at a couple of different versions of it, don't include the Stumps day one score, but he's definitely not out because he comes back and on the 31st of May, final day of the month, um, sticks the landing. According to Stephen Lynch and Wisden, who I um, mentioned Lynch before, he, he gave a chance on 175, but... He got to 232 on the knocker, all out 506, but 232 was what he needed. And that's exactly what he scored. He was out huh. on that number to Arthur Gilligan, who'd been captain of England, later was a major commentator that Daniel and I spoke about on Calling yeah. the Shots. And he was caught- still was stranded on an island after an unfortunate <laughs> boating mishap when they were blown off course. But fun times and hijinks did ensue. Uh, silly hat that he wore. Uh, he, he was caught by the keeper. Actually, he was caught by Jim Parks. And we've done the Jim Parks bit before. He wasn't keeping that week for Sussex for whatever reason. He was out in the house. So I'm not sure where he was caught. That's not in the, not in the match report. Hmm. So he gets there. And yeah, as I say, he was allegedly, according to one report, it was next ball he was out. So reached 1,000 by the end of May. Does so mm. in 27 days, out next delivery for 2.32. Maybe, maybe he brilliant. Keith Millard it. You know, that sort of thing they used to do where you get to 100 and then whack one up in the air and sure. walk off because you, know, you, you don't don't want to seem unseemly by going for more runs. It's possible that that was the case. Just going back to what, what Hallows did in his international career, albeit brief, played twice for England, once in 1921 against Australia at Manchester. It was the fourth test. Australia were already 3-0 up, so England were throwing it around a little bit. They got... 362 for four, and Hallows was carded at seven, so they declared before he got a chance to bat. Australia made 175. England had a hit the second time in a rainy draw, just 13 overs, and Hallows, they said, okay, you can open. You're on to boo, you get a bat. You're batting seven, but now you're opening. Made 16 not out in 39 minutes when they shook hands. And that looked to be it, one test innings, until the month after his 1,000 runs by the end of May. He got given another test match, which is only fitting, I think, against the West Indies, their inaugural test match at Lords. Now, he was opening in that test and made 26 with Sutcliffe down the other end. I'm not sure why Hobbs uh, wasn't playing. He was still um, playing test cricket until 1930, wasn't he, Hobbs? But he put on 51 with Sutcliffe opening the batting. Then he's caught Griffith bowled Constantine, or Constantine, depending on um, how you want to pronounce it, which means that he was the first wicket in West Indies Test history. Huh. First test for them, opening the batting. Has to be him. So he's got that piece of trivia, um, if you like. Unfortunately, that's his lot. West Indies followed on. England won by an innings and 58. Never played another test match. But, you know, 42 in two innings, an average of 42. That's fine. It was also his benefit year in 1928 where he raised 2,906 pounds. I love that detail on Cricket Archive when they tell you how much money was raised in a benefit year. Kept playing until 1932, made 21,000 runs at 40, 55 centuries, but just 11 innings it took him in 1928. So equal third behind Bradman, who, as you documented, did it in seven hits. Grace did it in 10, so not bad going. And of note, it was all done in the county championship. No one else that reached 1,000 by the end of May did it in just championship games. They involved you know, other first-class mm. fixtures. And he's the only left-hander. So there you go. Got a couple of things in his huh. favour there, Charlie Hallows. He, according to his obituary, refused to grow old, but died suddenly at age 77. He was a little short of breath, sat down and passed away. So, I mean, we should all be so lucky, I suppose, in a way. Uh, maybe not quite the 77. I suppose we all wish to live a little bit longer than that, I guess. But had a life that, uh, according to his obit, he lived it the right way. And battered in that fashion as well, the 232 on the final day of May 1928. Charlie Hallows for Nigel Brown.
An incredible that he also invented Halloween, um, a real legacy <laughs> that he's left to all of us. All Hallows Eve, that's what they used to call it when the family got together and, uh, you know, talked about the time he made a 1,000 in the month of May. There you go, Nigel. Um, those are our reviews. It's got a couple of confirmations, some ones we got right. Ramaswamy, yes. bang, a yes. <laughs> we got it. The 420 that he sent through in a roundabout way was about the gentleman, was it Richard Stokes, who yep. witnessed both of the 10 wicket halls in test history, one in the 50s, one in the 90s. Ramaswamy had suggested in his Clue poem uh, that he might have seen this thrice, which we were wondering about. So he said the thrice might end up being like the statement that Australia never lost a series with Wally Grout on board, that is to say incorrect, but based on my memory of a report <laughs> in 1999 that claimed Mr Stokes had seen parts of both of Lakers' tenfers because Laker takes 10 against the touring Australians in a county match and then does it again in the test match. I hope you get to chat with him to clear that up. Well, we'll, we'll see if we can get in touch. I, for one, says Ramaswamy, am now more careful uh, about making statements, he means. Uh, for instance, not claiming there was a 420 on the field uh, on February 7th, 1999, when Kumble took his 10 wickets. A 420, if you don't recall, is slang, not just in America for certain things, but a slang in India for a dodgy, a person of low uh, moral character, a person who's up to something. Ramaswamy says there may or may not have been a 420 on the field who set a slip cordon for Srinath's opening spell with just two fielders. As a little footnote, Muhammad Azharuddin was the captain of that side. Make of that what you will. He says, my record of that over is locked away on a VHS tape that I can no longer play and I can't trust my memory. If you can unearth the details, let me know. I did find some footage, Ramaswamy, of uh, some pretty extended footage of that match and I can tell you that when Srinath is bowling at the start of the final innings, there is only one slip visible. There may be a gully, I can't see that far but at least for the first few overs. But then for a, for a fast bowler in Delhi, you often wouldn't have more than one one in the cordon, would you? Yeah, we, we saw a pretty fiery first session in Delhi this year, Jeff, that we, we covered and commentated on, but it, it yeah it settled down and became a Bunsen pretty quickly too. Um, yeah, but well, yeah, uh, brilliant having Ramaswamy back in the show. He's been like just so important to what we've been able to do with Storytime over the last couple of years. So great to have you part of it. I'm sure we'll have another number for him coming in soon. Richard Jadsmore, we had that double answer for him where we had him on the show in consecutive weeks, just the way it fell. Lovely stuff on the latest episode. Did Colin Milburn proud. Such a sad story. Nice to be able to remember one of the highlights. That was the 100 he made, the Test 100 at Lords. Uh, and 48 is no age at all, quite right. Helen Wilson in her 316. Thanks for the story of Jack Cobbs' 316, particularly the Cambridgeshire stories of his early life. Fabulous that you're thinking of devoting an entire episode to him. I'm looking forward to telling my uncle all about it. He's already decided what my next number should be. That's just a reminder. If you weren't listening next week, we're going to have Jack Hobbs Day next year in September 2024, which will reflect 90 years since his last first class innings. Helen, great corresponding with you as well as we worked our way towards that correct answer. If you weren't listening next week is really taking our time travel thing to a new level. Is that what stage. I said last week? <laughs> that I is what you said. Sorry. <laughs> Rory, Rory Seymour's $2.64. He said, correct, with Flintoff's captaincy on the 2006 India tour, as you said, one all should be seen as a bigger achievement in hindsight. The number itself, which we forgot to solve, I think, was Flintoff's <laughs> runs for the series, 264 yep. runs at 53. Keep up the good work. Need to think of my next nerd pledge now. That's the challenge. Uh, we keep solving them. You've got to keep thinking of them. And Alex Browns 174 said it was indeed the test innings of 174 that JV Coney made at the Basin Reserve.
serve in 1980, whatever it was. And relevant to Adam, as per the clue, because I made the pledge after I was touched to meet the great man in Nottingham last year. I think you introducing Alex Brown to Jeremy Coney is <laughs> probably top five moments of his life. I, you know, I, I imagine this, you know, the, the, say, the birth of his daughter and so on, probably up there, but but so would Coney. Yeah, love the way that Alex is. He, he kind of subtly came up to me when we were chatting and said, I'd, I'd love to meet Jeremy. I'm like, well fuck, let's go and have a chat to Jeremy. And they, they, they had a, a lovely exchange over from memory, about 10 or 15 minutes. It was the night when the, the Socceroos won the penalty shootout to go through to the World Cup and we were all kind of gathered around, I think, Henry's phone and watching that. And, yeah, it was a great night during last year's Nottingham Test match. It would have been the night before the besto crazy century. So, in a way, like the night before Basball really started, we'll think of cricket in those terms, won't we, pre-Basball and post-Basball? Probably not, but, you know, it was a good, it was a good week up there. Alex finishes by saying, I was 11 when Dad took me to my first game of cricket at the Basin and told me for the first of a few thousand times about the day when John R. Reid hit 15 <laughs> sixes when Dad was working for the post office and telexing the breaking news. It was a different time back then. It was a different time. That's it. That is it. That's been Story Time 153, the first of the World Cup, the Men's World Cup over in India. So this will be a kind of similar rhythm to this one, I hope, over the next six weeks where we get a few new numbers done, a few revisits, a couple of confirmations. So it'll be bouncing around more, but as we've said in the past and will again here, if not for Nerd Pledge and if not for Patreon, then we couldn't do all of these things. So thank you to everybody who supports us financially through Patreon. It's huge. The Discord channel is a wonderful thing as well. So uh, no better time to hit the button, patreon.com forward slash uh, the final word. And there is yeah, there is so much more to come in, in, in the next two months and, and, and on and on it goes. That's right. Uh, deep breath. I'm sure there'll be a new episode in the feed. There'll be a daily show coming up around the corner um, whenever this goes out. God knows when that is. Yeah, you can. You can. It's, it probably isn't too late to join. What are we calling it again? The um, combat listening. Combat listening. I, I lost the term mm. from it. I've seen combat listening. It's got like 30 people signed up to it. But if you jump on Patreon now, I'm sure yep. upon arriving on Discord, you can be led into combat listening, which is going to be playing out on Discord throughout the course of uh, the next two months. Yes, that is that is the um, art of trying to listen to every episode before the next episode is released. Um, it is a difficult game, I'll tell you what. And I'm going to complicate that by throwing in, I think, 12 more episodes into the feed this month, which I haven't even told you about yet, Jeff, but um, uh, it is going to be uh, time-sensitive. It has to go this month. I'll explain to you when we're off air, but it's going to make uh -oh. combat listening all the more complicated. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> all right. Good luck, everybody. We'll see you on the battlefield. Bye. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about it.